Hello, it's Eric Topol with Ground Truce, and I have got an extraordinary guest with me today, Jim Collins, who's the Termier Professor of Medical Engineering at MIT. He also holds appointments at the Weiss Institute, the Broad Institute. Uh, he is uh, a biomedical engineer who's been making uh, exceptional contributions uh, and has been on a tear lately, especially uh, in the work of discovery of very promising, exciting developments in antibiotics. So uh, welcome, Jim. Well, Eric, thanks for having me on the podcast. Well, this uh, was a shock when I saw your paper in Nature um, in December uh, about a new structural class of antibiotics, uh, the one from 1962 to 2000, it took 38 years. And then there was another one um, that took uh, you know 24 years, yours, the structural antibiotics. Before I get to that, though, I want to go back just a couple, a few years, to the work you did uh, published in Cell with Hallison. And can you tell us about this? Because when I started to realize what you've been doing, what you've been chipping away here, uh, this was a drug you found, Hallison, as I, as I can try to uh, understand. It, it works against tuberculosis, C. difficile, uh, enterobacter that are resistant, a synodobacter that are resistant. I mean, this is, uh, and, and this is, in, of course, in mice models. Um, can you tell us, how did you make that discovery before we get into, um, I guess, what's called the Audacious Project? Yeah, no, sure. It's, a, it's actually a fun story. So it, its origins go broadly to uh, institute-wide event at MIT. So MIT, in 2018, launched a major campus-wide effort focused on artificial intelligence. The Institute, which had played a major role in the first wave of AI in the 1950s, 1960s, and a major wave in the second wave in the 1980s, found itself kind of asleep at the wheel in this third wave involving big data and deep learning and looked to correct that. And uh, to correct it, the Institute had a symposium, and I had the opportunity to sit next to Regina Barzilay, one of our faculty here at MIT who specializes in AI, and particularly AI applied to biomedicine. And... We really hit it off and realized we had interest in applying AI to drug discovery. And my lab had focused on antibiotics for, to then, close to 15 years, but primarily we're using machine learning and network biology to understand the mechanism of action of antibiotics and how resistance arises with the goal of boosting what we already had. With Regina, we saw there was an opportunity to see if we could use deep learning to get after discovery. And notably, as you kind of alluded in your introduction, there's really been a discovery void. And the golden age of discovery of antibiotics was in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, before I was born, and before you had the genomic revolution, the biotech revolution, AI revolution. But anyways, we got together with our two groups, and it was an unfunded project. And we kind of cobbled together a very small training set of 2,500 compounds that included 1,700 FDA-approved drugs and 800 natural compounds. And in 2018, 2019, when you started this, if you asked any AI expert, should you initiate that study, they would say, absolutely not. There's going to be too few data. It's, you know, the idea of these models are very data hungry. You need a, thousand, a million pictures of a dog, a million pictures of a cat to train a model to differentiate between the cat and the dog. But we, we ignored the naysayers and said, okay, let's see what we can do. And we applied these to E. coli, so a model pathogen that's used in labs, but is also underlies urinary tract infections. So it's in, look to see which of the molecules inhibited growth of the bacterium as evidence for antibacterial activity. And we could have measured and we quantified each of their effects, but because we had so few compounds, we just discretized and said, if you 
inhibited at least 80% of the growth, you were antibacterial. And if you didn't achieve that, you weren't antibacterial, zero and ones. We then took the structure of each molecule and trained a deep learning model, specifically a graphical neural net that could look at those structures, bond by bond, substructure by substructure, and associate it with whatever features you look to train with. In our case, making for good antibiotic, not for good antibiotic. We then took the trained model and applied it to a drug repurposing hub as part of the Broad Institute that consists of 6,100 molecules in various stages of development as a new drug. And we asked the model to identify molecules that can make for a good antibiotic, but didn't look like existing antibiotics. So part of the discovery void has been linked to this rediscovery issue we have, where we just keep discovering quinolones like Cipro or beta-lactams like penicillin. Well, anyways, from those criteria, as well as a small tox model, only one molecule came out of that. And that was this molecule we called Halicin, which was named after Hal, the killing AI computer system from 2001 Space Odyssey. In this case, we don't want to kill humans, we want it to kill bacteria. And as you alluded, it turned out to be a remarkably potent novel antibiotic that killed off multi-drug resistant, extensively drug resistant and pan resistant bacteria. Went after tolerant infections, it was effective against TB, it was effective against C. diff and Acinobacter baumani, and acted through a completely new mechanism of action. And so we we're very excited to see how AI could open up possibilities and enable one to explore chemical spaces in new and different ways. And we took the model, then applied it to a very large chemical library of 1.5 billion molecules, looked at a subset of about 110 million that would be impossible for any grad student, any lab really, to look at that experimentally. But we looked at it in a model, uh, computer system, and in three days could screen those 110 million molecules and identified a several new additional candidates, one of which we call salicin, which is a cousin of halicin, that simulates broad spectrum and acts to a novel mechanism of action. So before we go up further with this initial burst of discovery, um, for those who are not used to deep neural networks, I think most now are used to the convolutional neural network for images. But what you use specifically here, as you alluded to, were graph neural networks that yes. you could actually study the the, bind, the binding uh, properties. Can you just elaborate a little bit more about these GNNs so that people know this is one of the tools that you use? Yeah. So in this case, the underlying structure of the model can actually represent and capture a graphical structure of a, of a, mo a molecule or it might be of a network so that the underlying structure itself of the model will also look at things like a carbon atom connects to an oxygen atom. The oxygen atom connects to a nitrogen atom. And so when you think back to the chemical structures we learned in high school, maybe we learned in college, if we took chemistry class in college, it was actually a, a model that can capture the chemical structure representation and begin to look at sub-aspects of it, associating different properties of it. In this case, again, ours was antibacterial, but it could be toxic, whether it's toxic against a human cell. And the model, the trained model, the graph neural model can now look at new structures that you input them and then make calculations on those bonds. So a bond would be a connection between two atoms or substructures would be multiple bonds interconnecting multiple atoms and assign it a score. Does it make, for example, in our case, for a good antibiotic? Right. Now, uh, what's also striking is you set up this collaboration that's interdisciplinary with Regina, who I know of her work through breast cancer AI uh, and not, you know, through drug discovery. 
and so this was, I think, uh, that new effort and this discovery led to this, I love the name of it, Audacious Project, right? That's right. Yeah, so a few points on the collaboration, then I'll speak to Audacious Project. So in addition to Regina, we also brought in Tommy Jocola, another AI faculty member and marvelous colleague here at MIT. And really, we benefited from having outstanding young folks who were multilingual. So we had very rich, deep trained grad students from ML on Regina and Tommy's side who appreciated the biology. And we had very richly, deeply trained postdocs, John Stokes in particular, from the microbiology side on my side, who could appreciate the machine learning. And so they could speak across the divide. And so as I look out in the next few decades in this exciting time of AI coming into biomedicine, I think the groups that will make a difference are those that have these multilingual young trainees and two who are well set up to also inject human intelligence with machine intelligence. Yeah. So no, we're the audacious project now. Um, prior to our publication of Hallison, I was invited by the Audacious Project to submit a proposal. So the Audacious Project is a new philanthropic effort run by TED. So the group that does the TED Talks that's run by Chris Anderson. So Chris had the idea that there was a need to bring together philanthropists around the world to go for a larger scale in a collective manner toward audacious projects. And I pitched them on the idea that we could use AI to address the antibiotic resistance crisis. You know, as you can appreciate, and many of your listeners can appreciate that, uh, we're doomed if we don't actually address this soon in that the number of resistance strains that are in our communities and our hospitals has been growing decade upon decade. And yet the number of new antibiotics being developed and approved has been dropping decade upon decade, largely because the antibiotic market is broken. It costs just as much to develop an antibiotic as it does a cancer drug or a blood pressure drug. But an antibiotic you take once or maybe over the course of three to five days, blood pressure drug, cancer drug, you might take for months, if not for the rest of your life. Pricing points for antibiotics are small dollars. Cancer drugs, blood pressure drugs, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. We pitched this idea that we can maybe turn to AI and use the power of AI to address this crisis and see if we could use uh, our wits to outcompete the genes of superbugs. And Chris and his team really were taken with this. And we worked with them over the course of nine months and learned how to make the presentations and pulled this together. And, and Chris took our pitches to a number of really active and fantastic philanthropists. And they got behind us and gave us a, a good amount of money to launch what we have now called the Antibox AI Project at MIT. And in conjunction with it, and also using funding from the Audacious Project, we've launched a nonprofit called FairBio, P-H-A-R-E, which is French for lighthouse. So our notion is that antibiotics are a public good that we need to get behind as a community. And FairBio, which is run by Akila Kosara, she's the CEO and president is the mission of which is to take the most promising molecules out of the antibiotics AI project and advance them towards the clinic through partnerships with biotech, with pharma, with other nonprofits, with nation states as needed. Mm. Well, that uh, before I get to the next uh, chain of discovery uh, and its explainability features, which we all like to see when you can explain stuff uh, with AI, um, did Hallison because of this remarkable finding, did it get into clinical trials yet? It's being advanced quite nicely and aggressively by FairBio. So FairBio is in discussions with the Department of Defense and BARDA. And actually on uh, an interesting feature of, of Hallison is that it acts like a flash bomb in the gut, meaning that when delivered orally to the gut, it only acts briefly and very quickly in a fairly narrow spectrum manner as well, so that it can go after 
pathogens sparing the commensals. And one of the challenges our U.S. military faces, one of the challenges many militaries face, are gut issues when soldiers are first deployed to a new location. And it can disable the soldiers for three to four weeks. And so there's a lot of excitement that Hallison might be effective as a treatment to help prevent gut dysbiosis resulting from, from new deployments. Oh, wow. That's another application I would never have, have thought of. Uh, interesting. So um, you then moved on to this really big uh, report in Nature, um, which I think this is now involving a transformer model, as I recall. Uh, so you can explain the difference. And you made a, a discovery from a massive, again, number of potential compounds to Staph aureus resistant, methicillin resistant um, agents that were very potent in vivo. So mm. how did you how did you make this big jump? Because this is a whole new structural class of antibiotic. Yeah. So, you know, we made this jump. This was an effort led by Felix Wong, who's a really talented postdoc in my lab. And we got intrigued of to what extent could we expand the utility of AI in biology and medicine is you can appreciate that that many of our colleagues are underwhelmed by the black box nature of many AI models. And by black box, I mean that when you train your model, you then largely use it as a filter where you'll provide the model with some input. You look at the output and the output's what's of interest to you. But you don't really understand in most cases what guided the model to make the prediction of the output that you look at. And that can be very unsatisfactory for biologists interested in mechanisms. It can be very unsatisfactory for physicians interested in understanding the underlying disease mechanism. It can be unsatisfactory for biotech and drug discoveries that want to understand how drugs act and what maybe underlies meaningful structural features. So with Felix, we decided it'd be interesting if you could open up the box. So could you look inside the model to see what was being learned? And we were able to open up in this case, actually, we primarily focused on graph neural nets. We now have a new piece we're just about to submit on transformers. But in this case, we could open up and look to see what were the rationales, what were the chemical substructures that the model was pointing to in each compound that was leading to the high prediction that it could make for a good antibody. And these rationales we then used as hooks. I should notably say that we were able to identify the rationales from these large collections using algorithms that were, that were developed by DeepMind as part of their AlphaGo program. So AlphaGo was developed by DeepMind as a deep learning platform to play and win Go, the ancient Asian right. board game. And we used similar approaches called Monte Carlo tree searches that allowed us to identify these rationales that we effectively then used as hooks and kind of organizing hooks on screens where you can envision or appreciate that most experimental screens give you one-offs. This molecule does what you want. In silico screens are similarly designed. With these rationales, we could use them as organizing hooks to say, ah, these compounds that are identified as making for very good antibiotics all have the same substructure. And thus, they likely are in the same class and act in similar mechanism. And this led us to identify five novel classes, one of which we highlighted in this piece, that acts very effectively against MRSA. So methicillin resistant staph aureus, as you alluded, which is probably the most famous of the antibiotic resistant pathogens mm -hmm. that we even outside infection disease are quite familiar with it. B devil's athletes, so NFL players are often hit with uh, MRSA, whether from scraping their 
uh, limbs on AstroTurf or from actually surgeries to say, for example, correct something at their knee. And this new class had great efficacy in animal models, again, acting through a new mechanism. Will you bring that forward like Hallison through this uh, same entity? Yes, we've, we've now provided the molecules to FairBio and they're digging in to see which of these might be the most exciting and interesting to advance clinically. I mean, it's amazing because this area is so neglected. Maybe you can help explain, since we're talking about existential threats as we get more and more resistant antibiotics and the biopharma industry is basically not into this and it relies on the work that you've been doing uh you know perhaps there are other groups i don't know of any that are doing more than you um that, i mean it's incredible to me uh that this, is it just because of the financial aspects that the business there's no business in this in in the life science industry well, you know it's it's an interesting challenge so i you know i've thought about it i i really haven't come up with a great solution yet but i think you've got multiple factors at play. One is that I think all of us, every one of your listeners has lost someone to a bacterial infection. But in most cases, you don't realize you lost them to a bacterial infection. It might be that your elderly relative went into the hospital with a condition but acquired a, a, a hospital-based infe hospital infection and died subsequently from that and happened quite quickly. In other cases, it, again, it's secondary. Notably during the pandemic, one out of seven individuals hospitalized for COVID had a bacterial infection, and 50% of those who died had a bacterial co-infection. And noted, like you go back to the Spanish flu of over 100 years ago, it was as deadly as it was because we didn't have antibiotics, and most of the folks that died had a bacterial co-infection. So you have this in the backdrop. You then have that nobody's kind of gotten behind it, so we don't have any major foundation addressing antibiotic resistance. There are no charity walks. There are no charity runs. There is no month. There is no color. There are no ribbons. There are no celebrity behind it. There's just not known. So it hasn't captured the public's imagination. Mm -hmm. And then you couple with that, this backdrop of the broken market where I said, shared, it's really expensive to develop a new antibiotic. But if you develop a new antibiotic, the tendency now will be to shelve it until it's desperately needed. So now even the young companies that had developed and gotten an antibiotic through to approval often went bankrupt because the model, the market couldn't provide them with revenue to go after the next one or sustain their efforts. And so you have pharma biotech jumping out. I think we need a, a two-pronged effort going forward. I do think we need nation states mm -hmm. to come forward and get behind this. And I think we increasingly need philanthropists to come forward and go after it. As you, I, I share your term of existential threat. I think if you spoke, speak with most educated individuals, antibiotic resistance, broadly antimicrobial resistance, will be on everyone's existential threat list. But notably, of that list, it's the cheapest one that can be solved. Well, you're showing that uh, you've got the most extraordinary candidates that have been found in decades. So that's, uh, that says a lot right there. Yeah. yeah. So I think we've got additional innovation needed in the models to address this. And until we have that addressed, then this interesting discoveries we and others are making will not get to patients. So we need to have that additional next step to close this gap. Now, obviously, this has relied on AI and the progress that's occurring in AI uh, to enable some of your work. I, I, I'm fascinated by the use of AlphaGo. Most times we hear about using AlphaFold 2, but you actually use AlphaGo, uh, yeah. the original game uh, DeepMind uh, work. Uh, but there also was the progress of from deep neural networks to transformer models. 
and your ability now to basically exemplify what can be achieved in drug discovery using the progress in multimodal AI. Uh, is, this, is this something that is making a difference for you and your group? It is. It's, it's huge. I think it's very early in terms of the introduction of these new tools extensively within drug discovery. You know, machine learning has been used for over two decades, both supervised learning and unsupervised learning. And now we're seeing groups coming in for the deep learning efforts. It's largely data-driven. So in fact, with the exception of sequences, most of drug discovery is not yet big data in the big data phase, but it's beginning to change. It's truly been transformative for us. So we've used graph neural nets primarily for our discovery efforts. We're now beginning to incorporate language models as multimodal models along with the graph neural nets, as well as to see to what extent pre-trained language models, for example, Moleformer from IBM, which was trained on PubChem and the Zinc database, could be fine-tuned with small amounts of training data, screening data from a resistant organism. Third, and I made an indirect allusion already, we've been looking at using transformers and genetic algorithms, an older form of AI tech, for design of novel antibiotics. So we've been now looking to see using fragments as a starting base, using trained models to build out novel antibiotics that can then be de novo designed. One of the big challenges in that space is how do you synthesize these molecules? So you have both the challenge of can you come up with a small number of steps that enable you to synthesize? And second is could you find somebody to synthesize them? And each of those remains very big challenges. My faculty colleague here at MIT, Connor Cole, he's probably one of the world leaders, argue easily, well, he's in using AI to calculate the synthesizability of a molecule, but we still have gaps in that we don't have the community resources to make most of what we come up with. Well, one of the features of large language models that David Baker and the Protein Design Institute um, exploited is its ability to hallucinate and make come up with proteins that don't are not that, that don't exist. Can you do the same thing in your design of uh, antibiotic? candidate molecules in the way that is not worrying about the synthesis, but just basically um, uh, the hallucinatory behavior of large language models. You know, it's interesting. So y yes. And, and so David's work is, is marvelous. And we're, we're big fans and longtime friends um, of his work. Yes. Yeah, so we've been driving these models truly to do de novo synthesis. So based on what has been learned, can you put together molecules that one's never seen before? And, and we're doing it quite successfully. It becomes interesting from the hallucination in that, you know, it comes out really more of, of th these models making stuff up. And, and ours, it's really more directing the hallucinations, right? Really looking to see, can we harness the imagination of the models in order to move them forward in very creative design manners? Yeah. I mean, I, I think most people have a negative connotation of hallucinations, but these are the smart uh, variety potentially. Yeah. Uh, this, uh, in many ways, you could say, you know, there's so much crowded interest uh, in the uh, drug discovery AI world, but what you're doing now seems to be setting the pace uh, in many respects uh, for others to follow to, such, you know, remarkable advances in a short time. And by the way, we'll link to that TED talk you gave um, in, the, in April of 2020, where in seven minutes you went over what you're doing, of uh, course, and who would have known? And, that was in 2020 that where you'd be three or four years later. And that was, you know, what you're going to do over the next seven years with seven new classes of, uh, of new antibiotics. Now, before we wrap up, 
it isn't just that you're uh, an AI antibiotic, you and your team, antibiotic discoverer, and, you know, doing compressing in time, what has taken decades that you're doing in months, <laughs> but also um, you are a, a father a figure in the field of synthetic biology. And I wonder if you, before we wrap up, can explain not only what synthetic biology is, since a lot of people don't really know what that means, but how does that dovetail with your efforts uh, in what we've been t discussing? Yeah, thanks. So, um, you know, synthetic biology is a relatively new field that's bringing together engineers with biologists to use engineering principles to model, design, and build synthetic gene networks and other molecular components that can be used to rewire and reprogram living cells and cell-free systems, endowing them with novel functions for a variety of applications. So these circuits, these programmable cells are impacting broad swaths of the economy from food and water to health and sustainability, to bioenergy, to human health. And our focus is primarily human health. And we've been advancing the idea that you can reprogram bacteria to detect and treat bacterial infections. So we've shown you can use this to go after cholera. We've shown you can use this to prevent antibiotic-induced gut dysbiosis. We've also used synthetic biology to create whole new classes of diagnostics, for example, paper-based ones using RNA sensors for Ebola, for Zika, and for COVID. How, you know, how it dovetails with what we talked about is that I think there's a great opportunity now to turn to AI to expand synthetic biology, both expanding the number of parts we have to re-engineer living systems, as well as to better infer design principles that can be used to reprogram, rewire living systems. And we're beginning to advance. We're not yet at the SynBio AI project phase, but very, very early efforts. And you know, David's dominating the protein space, and we and others are beginning to now move into the RNA space. So to what extent can we create large libraries of RNA components, train language-based models, structure-based models that can both predict RNA structure, but more critically predict RNA function. And as you know from uh, your marvelous work and what's happening is that it's the exciting age of RNA, of getting after RNA therapeutics, be it mRNA or CRISPR related. And we still need to get better at our ability to design those therapeutics with certain functions in mind. And we think AI is going to help get us there faster. Well, speaking of that, um, there was a paper this week in Cell by McCafferty. And uh, one of the sentences that struck me was, we are standing on the cusp of a new era of biology where the integration of multimodal structural data sets with multi-scale physics-based simulation will enable the development of visible virtual cells. Um, it does, this of course is a, yet another uh, lineage or, or direction of where we're headed with AI, but this fusion of you know, the advances that are occurring right now with, in biology, with AI, uh, that extend in many different directions. It, it, it's so exciting. And, to, and, and you are basically nailing it. I mean, you are just, uh, you're putting points on the board, Jim. And I, I just have to say, I'm blown away by what you've been accomplishing in a, in a, a time space uh, that's so incredibly compressed. Oh, well, thanks. Well, you know, you think back to the early days of molecular biology and physicists like Francis Crick and Max Delbruck played huge pioneering roles. And then in the second wave in the 80s or so, you had other physicists like Walt, Wally Gilbert playing big roles. I do think physicists, computer scientists are starting now to 
play big roles in this next phase where we need tools like AI in order to really grapple with and harness the complexity of both the biology and the chemistry that underlies living cells. They can kind of expand our intuitions, both to understand and to really control these systems for good going forward. Well, you're doing it. And uh, we'll be cheering for the success of these drugs that you've come up with in the clinical trials as they go forward, because they look so remarkably promising. You even highlighted ways that I wouldn't have envisioned where they could make a difference. So uh, we'll follow your work, you and your oh, colleague, you. with, with great interest. Thanks so much for, for joining. Eric, thanks for having me. Enjoyed our conversation.